Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids. What's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. During the earliest days of this millennium, I took part in a kind of history series, an ambitious survey that explored milestones in American culture decade by decade. Of course, I'm talking about... And after I Love the 80s, there was... And really, who could forget... What made Dynasty work was the cat fights. Yeah, he went from John Cougar to John Cougar Mellencamp, and I thought, did he get married? John Travolta's ass in Urban Cowboy is, uh, there should be a shrine built to it. It was a classy show featuring a panoply of commentators, and I was one of them, pondering complex topics like 1980s hospital dramas. St. Elsewhere was an hour-long drama. It starred Mark Harmon as Dr. Bobby Caldwell. Comedian and actor Michael Ian Black was another contributor. I thought, if anything, the title That's Incredible was an understatement of how incredible the things on That's Incredible were. We didn't really know each other back then, but I distinctly remember his take on the 1981 Neanderthal epic Quest for Fire. While most of us were obsessed with the film's nudity, Michael took the high road. I was really looking at, at it more from an anthropological point of view than to see Ray Don Chung's tatas. And it's that prehistory that's our subject this episode. Since Quest for Fire, we've learned some stunning truths about Neanderthals. And I knew who I wanted to discuss this topic with, my friend Michael Ian Black. Back when we were loving the 80s, neither of us knew just how connected he is to our human cousins of 4,000 decades ago. If they had told me only how much Neanderthal I am, I would have paid twice the amount for the test. I'm Mo Rocca, and this is Mobituaries. This Mobit, Neanderthals, circa 40,000 years ago death of a human species. Okay, first let's take care of some basics. The name Neanderthal comes from the Neander Valley in Germany, where one of the first Neanderthal skulls was found in 1856. At the time, the fossil was misidentified as the skull of a Cossack soldier from the Napoleonic Wars. They were only off by a few tens of thousands of years. Now, Neanderthals were also human, but a separate species. Homo sapiens, that's us, and Neanderthals did share a common ancestor over half a million years ago. Homo sapiens would go on to flourish in Africa, while Neanderthals roamed across Europe and Asia, adapting to a colder, harsher climate. Eventually, the two species did meet up. Then, about 30 to 40,000 years ago, Neanderthals disappeared without a trace. Or so we thought. Which brings me to my guest, Michael Ian Black. 
So, Michael Ian Black, thank you so much for joining me for this whole episode. My pleasure. Let's get the promotion out of the way first because it, it's deserved. Your podcast, How to Be Amazing, is amazing. Yes, you can be on it, Mo. Yes. <laughs> I know. That's, you knew that's where I was going. <laughs> so, years ago, I interviewed you about your one of your books, Naval Gazing, and in it, you talked about genetic testing. Mm-hmm. And why did you go about investigating your genetic makeup? I think the same reason most people do, just curiosity. I just wanted to know, genetically speaking, who I am. I had it in my head that I must be at least a pastiche of things, some kind of melange. I was hoping to find some African-American, some Native American, but the results were so disappointingly kind of exactly what I had been led to believe. Uh, which is that I am a hundred percent Ashkenazi Jew. I do think the food is better than Sephardic food. D- delicious, delicious. If you just take the gefilte fish out of that, which I have always associated and will always associate with just jellied cat turds. <laughs> <laughs> but but you say you found out you were a hundred percent Ashkenazi Jew, but that's not quite right. Well, it is in terms of ethnicity. Mm-hmm. But there was also a marker, which I didn't know till I got it back from the company, that says it will also tell you your Neanderthal percentages. If they had told me only how much Neanderthal I am, I would have paid twice the amount for the test. Right. Because for some reason, that just really captured my imagination to think, oh, I may be part of an entirely different species. Right. That was thrilling to me. And I didn't know that they had developed... The test, and I found out that I am 2.9% Neanderthal, which is greater than the norm. The average is a 2.7%. Okay, that's a significant difference. I mean, I can't tell you how delighted I was to hear this because your listeners can't see me, but you can probably tell by the way I speak and the timber of my voice that I am not the most masculine of fellows. But to uh, think... I was going to say, <laughs> I, mean, but... I mean, I'm tolerant, but to a point. <laughs> but just the popular image of the Neanderthal as a lumbering brute, as this strong survivor out on the steppes and plains, just thrilled me to no end. And so I was delighted, and I told my wife that I, I am above averagely Neanderthal, and she said, that's why you look like that. And she did not mean it as a compliment. And let me just say that Martha is highly evolved. She's basically Daryl Hannah in Clan of the Cave Bear. <laughs> I mean, a, a highly evolved leggy blonde. Yes, she is. But wait, wait, hold on. When you describe Neanderthals as masculine, lumbering brutes, you're making certain assumptions. And we'll dispel some of these in this episode. For instance... How do we know there weren't cultured epicene Neanderthals? <laughs> well, I think we do know. Now, you are doing the research, and I'm just speaking off the top of my head right. now. They were connoisseurs of fine wine, is my understanding. They did uh, puppet shows. Oh, Michael, we've got some work to do. Think of me as your Henry Louis Gates, and this as Finding Your Roots, <laughs> or as your Lisa Kudrow, and this is Who Do You Think You Are? I think that's her show. Um, I want you to know that your Neanderthal ancestors were pretty darn special. And not as different from us normal people as you may think. So how did they get such a bad rap? Let's find out. 
Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I grew up with so many classic TV shows and films about Neanderthals and cavemen, and they pretty much all got it wrong. In 1981, there was the aforementioned quest for fire. The characters basically just grunt through the whole movie. (laughs) Except when one of them gets beamed in the head by a rock. And then everyone laughs. (laughs) That same year, moviegoers were subjected to the Ringo Starr vehicle, Caveman. Bobo! Bobo! During the course of the movie, a bunch of bumbling cavemen discover fire. How to light farts on fire. And jam bands. And who could forget the Mel Blanc-voiced cartoon character... But as far as portrayals of the primordial go, the show that had the biggest impact on me was Land of the Lost. The theme song told the story of the series. It's about a family on a river rafting trip. During the ride, they go down a magical waterfall and enter a universe filled with dinosaurs and cave creatures. Hi, I'm Phil Paley, and I played Chaka on the... 70s show, Land of the Lost. You were only nine years old when you got this role. Tell us about the character. Chaka was the youngest of the Pakuni clan. What do you think he is? Some kind of a caveman, a monkey, or what? Chaka! 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 (laughs) I wore a, a prosthetic headpiece, so it had a very prominent brow and forehead. So it did kind of look Neanderthal ish. I guess. Back when I watched the show, I kind of assumed Chaka was a Neanderthal. But looking back at the clips now, he seems more monkey boy, furry all over, except for his face. The suit was made out of like nylon pantyhose material with a real human hair hand sewn into it. So it made it kind of itchy. Luckily, there are some people who know the difference between Saturday morning science fiction and real science. Anything that depicts Neanderthals as basically bad hair. That's what I laugh about. Professor John Hawks from the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire is one of the world's leading experts on Neanderthals. Why have Neanderthals had such a bad reputation? The Neanderthals are a group that doesn't have an advocacy. <laughs> they don't have a lobby. You know, there's, there's not Neanderthal representatives calling their congressmen. And, and so as a consequence, if you thought something bad about the past, you know, they were a convenient group because they weren't going to complain. It's so easy to use Geico.com. A caveman could do it. <laughs> what? Oh, no. I, not cool. I did not no. know you were there. Yes. I could not. The Neanderthals in those Geico commercials might be funny, but make no mistake, we're laughing at them. 
So how did this stereotyping of Neanderthals as brutish, howling, and stupid get started? John Hawkes says it may have begun with a 19th century German biologist named Ernst Haeckel who attempted to map a genealogical tree of all living things. When he came to early versions of us, he had no fossils to study. It was pretty much just guesswork. He chose a rather insulting classification. The name that he had for the predecessor of humans that would be the Neanderthals, basically, was Homo stupidus. Yes, Homo stupidus. But it was the French who really gave Neanderthals a bad name. In 1908, a nearly complete Neanderthal skeleton was found in a cave in the town of La Chapelle aux Saint. Paleontologist Marcel Boulle analyzed the remains of this individual and made sweeping and hugely influential assumptions about the entire species. The image that came out of his work was hairy and pretty ape-like, with splayed toes and a slouching, hunched posture. Kate Wong is a writer for Scientific American. And what researchers later determined was that this was an older individual, um, this Neanderthal, who had suffered from severe arthritis. So all of the sort of features that led Boole to assume that the species had these slouched, stooped traits were actually the result of disease. That is really hilarious to me. Isn't it wild? And I've, I've wondered about that before. Like when you find an individual species of something, what if you're finding a weird member of that species? And it turns out that's exactly what happened with the Neanderthals. Totally in agreement, fascinating and hilarious. But hold on, there's more. The old man of La Chapelle, as he came to be known, became the public's picture of Neanderthals for generations. They were the archetypal cave people. And that image, unfortunately, has stuck with the Neanderthals uh, over 100 years later. Professor Chris Stringer, the research leader at the Natural History Museum in London, tells me part of the problem was that in the early 20th century, we didn't understand how evolution worked. There was this rather simplistic idea that there would be missing links to be found in the story of human evolution. And it was because we were so fixated on the idea of a missing link that we typecast Neanderthals into the role of a half-ape, half-human caveman. But thanks to the rapid advancement in the study of archaic humans, the image of the Neanderthal is finally changing. To be sure, Neanderthals were different from us in appearance. The pronounced brow ridge and sloping forehead in those Geico commercials weren't dreamt up by makeup artists. So our brain case shape is rather globular, mm -hmm. sometimes described as like a soccer ball. Um, the Neanderthal cranial shape was longer and lower. In fact, the Neanderthal brain was bigger than ours, as was the Neanderthal schnoz. We guess that the whole nose would have been broader. They certainly seem to have had a nose that was capable of very, uh, very heavy breathing. It may also have served a function of warming up and humidifying the air when they were living in relatively colder and drier conditions. They were stockier, too, with rib cages that flared out and shorter limbs, better for conserving heat. But recent studies on the Neanderthal thorax suggest that they might have walked even more upright than we do. As for what they sounded like, Neanderthal voices might have been higher pitched than ours. Listen to this simulation from the BBC. 
Let's just add a bit of nasal now. One, two, three. Push into me. This is actually getting him right into his body. Now speak. One, two, three. No, that isn't a Monty Python sketch. It's a serious demonstration. But aside from the physical, what's really surprising is how on par Neanderthals were with us, cognitively and creatively. They made a lot of the same kinds of tools. Um, they had fire. They decorated their bodies with jewelry made from shells, eagle talons, animal teeth, um, all sorts of fabulous accoutrements. Some of these discoveries of them using feathers systematically and collecting predominantly the feathers of very dark black birds. We talk about it as Neanderthal goth because it seems like they preferred these dark raptors and dark crows and ravens and that sort of thing. Some scientists speculate that Neanderthals saw power in these dark birds and thought they'd be imbued with that power if they wore those feathers. And if you're picturing Cher and Bob Mackie at the 1986 Oscars, I am too. And within just the past few years, researchers found the first ever Neanderthal cave paintings and etchings, which reveal an early interest in social media. There's a great place in Gorham's Cave in Gibraltar that has this, what we call the Neanderthal hashtag, because it looks like that pound sign that is scratched onto the floor of the cave. What it means, what it meant to them, we have no idea. But it shows us some sign from the past that these were thinking beings. They were conveying something through their use of markings, through their use of ornaments, and that something was social. It was something about what they had to say to other individuals, what they had to communicate about themselves. And when it came to hunting, Neanderthals were pretty crafty. To attach tips to their spears, they made their own glue. In order to do that, you have to take birch bark and smoke it down, reduce it at high temperature so that the sap inside of it condenses into the sticky pitch. And that, in the end, makes a very, very tiny amount of this. So you've got to do this many times to concentrate it. Neanderthals manage that process. If I had to assign an engineering class to figure out how this was done, they would have a hard time of it. All to say that Neanderthals weren't the least bit stupidous. And neither was Chaka. Paku. Pakuni. And the Pakuni had a language. It was developed by a UCLA language professor by the name of Victoria Frompkin. After all these years, Philip Paley can still say some phrases in Paku. Well, these are classic ones. Uh, Bangu sarisataka. And that means beware of sleestack. With an important warning. Very. And uh, there's also Oganza bisasa. What does that mean? Big magic. I love, who doesn't love big magic? And, and <laughs> We're back with Mike Lee and Black talking about what it really means to be Neanderthal. Ugh. 
But I mean, they were capable of language. That we we, we learned yes. that, right? Right. But, I thought you were just belching. No, no, I was just grunting in a Neanderthal Neanderthal like way. <laughs> That's right. We should have done that at the top of the episode. <laughs> so there are two different ways to do it. <laughs> I like saying Neanderthal. There are some people that will say Neanderthal. So you are welcome. You can go back and forth. You can switch over to Neanderthal if you want. I am now forevermore going to pronounce it Neanderthal. Okay. So that's this is good. We're going to do a split on this. And I'm going to stick with Neanderthal. You stick with Neanderthal. Mm -hmm. And then everybody will be satisfied. Yeah. Uh, did you like Land of the Lost? Loved it. There were these uh, Sid and Marty Croft shows. And in my memory, that was the only tolerable one. Right. And I loved it. Yeah, I'm older than you are, so when I watched it, I could tell it was pretty cheaply done. But I like the opening credits. That's what I like because it, it just seemed really exciting. Uh, yeah, to me, there was nothing cheap about it. It was uh, as real as real gets. Rewatching a little bit of Captain Caveman, that cartoon, mm -hmm. I remember that I was kind of attracted to Captain Caveman. <laughs> <laughs> I just, there was something, maybe it was, I don't know, anyway... And now when I go back and look at it, I think it's kind of weird because he looks like a testicle, basically. Well, then that explains your attraction. Thank you. <laughs> the, um, um, so, 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 Michael, now that we've established that Neanderthals were intelligent and surprisingly similar to modern humans, that raises the question, why did Neanderthals go extinct? Now, there are various theories on this. First up... Professor Michael Staubwasser from the University of Cologne in Germany. My speciality is a subject called isotope geochemistry. Oh, he's got my old position. That's what I did before. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, is this awkward for you? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. I mean, you know. <laughs> so I asked him what he actually does. It's almost like you're a weatherman for the ancient times. Mm, yes, you could say that, yes. He didn't really like that line, as you could tell. <laughs> anyway. He thinks it's climate change that did in the Neanderthals. By studying stalagmites in caves, he determined that during their last 50,000 years on Earth, the average temperature in the Danube Valley, one of the places where Neanderthals lived, was much colder than it is now. It was about 39 degrees Fahrenheit. But, and this is crucial, during that period, there were these cold snaps that would ultimately seal their fate. They lasted something between a century and a millennium on average. They usually led to temperature drops, which could be up to, let's say, six to eight degrees. Today, it may not sound drastic, but it makes the difference between being able to grow crops or not. And if you can't eat, you're going to die. And then uh, as climate recovered, modern humans basically resettled an empty area, more or less. So he isn't saying that modern humans were better adapted to these cold temperatures than the Neanderthals. I think the point he's making is that the extinction of Neanderthals was pretty much bad timing, wrong place, wrong time. Hmm. But they had existed for millennia up until this point, and the average temperature as it's going down could have forced them south into warmer climates, but it seems like it didn't do that. I know. I don't know why. This feels like a very... Dumb theory. Which is why we have another theory for you on why Neanderthals died off. Okay, good. You remember Chris Stringer from the Natural History Museum in London. He thinks the small population of Neanderthals was essentially swallowed up by modern humans. Some experts estimate that at tops, there were only about 50,000 Neanderthals spread all across Eurasia. There just weren't that many of them. 
the Neanderthals were relatively low in numbers, and I think that it probably wouldn't have taken much to push them over the edge to extinction, and maybe the appearance of modern humans as a competitor was sufficient to do that. But of course, that's just a guess. Yeah, well, that sound, that just sounds like the most likely explanation. There was a sharknado of humans that came in and just just wiped them out. I mean, we have a habit of doing that. That's kind of what we do. It's who we are. <laughs> but who we are isn't who we used to think we are. Do, 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 do. Of course, Neanderthals aren't really gone. They live in you, Michael, and so many others. Let's find out what that means today. Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids. What's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What does it mean to have within our genetic code a certain percentage of Neanderthal DNA? I wanted to find out, so I'm heading to New Jersey to talk to one of the foremost experts in the field. My name is Josh Akey, and I'm a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology in the Lewis Sigler Institute for Integrative Genomics at Princeton University. And you did that all in one breath. <laughs> I know. <laughs> With 23andMe, you can discover where in the world your DNA comes from. An unforgettable gift. My Heritage DNA. What are your kit at AncestryDNA.com. I spoke to Professor Akey about what these DNA kits can tell us. It's one thing to find out that from one of these mail order things mm -hmm. that you're 10% Irish, 10% mm -hmm. Mediterranean, you know, 5% African. But to find out that you're 2.5% Neanderthal. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a whole other level of self-discovery. <laughs> We've always said that our genomes are a mosaic of different ancestors. And I think what we've learned more recently is it's a mosaic of both recent ancestors and very distantly related different types of human ancestors. Before we could get to know what Neanderthal DNA looked like, we had to truly understand our own DNA. More than a thousand researchers across six nations have revealed nearly all three billion letters of our miraculous genetic code. That was President Bill Clinton back in the year 2000, announcing the first time the human genome was sequenced. Then, in 2006, Swedish scientist Savante Papo and his team embarked upon sequencing the Neanderthal genome in a positively Jurassic Parkian way. They were able to isolate ancient DNA directly from a Neanderthal femur bone. So they drill into the long bone and they do a whole bunch of cleanup procedures to try to make sure that you're just getting Neanderthal DNA. All from this femur bone. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Once we sequenced the Neanderthal genome, we were able to recognize that we have what is called archaic DNA within our own genes. And this bombshell told us a lot about what Neanderthals and modern humans were doing with one another about 40 to 50,000 years ago. It's been, interestingly, one of the most hotly contested issues in science for 30 years, with people arguing 
either there was admixture that happened between Neanderthals and modern humans, or there wasn't. He's talking about sex. And recent studies suggest that they admixed a lot. Okay, so where did the modern humans and the Neanderthals end up hooking up? That's a great question and something we still don't know precisely. It seems to make most sense that the initial rounds of hybridization happened shortly after modern humans dispersed out of Africa. So maybe in Asia Minor, like in Turkey, modern-day Turkey? Levant. Oh, like in Syria and yeah. Jordan? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. it was a Middle Eastern. That's where they got together. That's, yes. And I can't help but imagine it. I mean, in kind of a literal way. I mean, 50,000 years ago, modern humans coming out of Africa and meeting a group of Neanderthals. Yeah. Modern, and what was that interaction like? What was that what? interaction? Did the modern human guy walk over to the female Neanderthal and were they saying like, stop, no, don't do it. She's not our kind. <laughs> There's so much we don't know, but we're learning more every day thanks to Professor Aki and his team. He took me on a tour of their facility. So we're going to go look at the experimental and computational space in the Lewis Sigler Institute. Do I have to wear a hairnet? Um, no, we're not going to be baking, but don't touch anything. Okay. Mostly for your safety. So these are my graduate students pretending like they're working. <laughs> uh, this is Mo, who is... Uh, Hi, nice to meet you. How's it going? Aaron. Um, this thesis project is on understanding how Neanderthal sequences distributed across the human genome. When you walk down the street, do you ever sort of wonder the Neanderthal content of different people? I'm actually really good at um, picking that out just by looking at you. Yeah. How much Neanderthal do you think is in me? Brush back your hair a little bit. Mm, I think you're about 1%. Okay, so my friend Michael Ian Black is two. 2.9% Neanderthal. He's an exceptional case. It's amazing. I wish I had a picture. Wait, let me just show you a picture of him. Yeah. Look at that. Look at him. Yeah, I can definitely see. Yeah, because he's got um, a small chin. And uh, Neanderthals are known for being relatively chinless, which is why I think you're lower, because you, you have a nice, strong chin. Oh, thank you. And he also has uh, this sort of backward sloping forehead, which is also very, um, yeah, what we refer to as like archaic. I don't Wait. feel like I have a very weak chin. You I don't have a weak chin. I don't have a Clapton-esque chin. <laughs> I've never felt the need to beard myself. You objectively do not have a weak chin. But I do have a reverse sloping forehead. He was right about that. It's but so does Roger Stone, and he's gorgeous. <laughs> All right. All right. One out of two. Let's get back to the piece. After meeting with grad student Aaron, Professor Aki set the record straight. Just because someone has a lot of Neanderthal DNA doesn't mean his or her physical appearance will reflect this. One of the dirty secrets still about genetics is that we are not very good at interpreting DNA sequence variation. So if I look at my friend Michael and I see certain features that may look like a rendering of a Neanderthal, that's just a coincidence. It is most likely just a coincidence. Most likely. You're leaving a little bit of room there. We can never say things with 100% certainty in science. That's hysterical. All right, let's go downstairs because that's where the fun toys are. This feels, this feels like the movie Coma. Remember Coma? <laughs> this is an Illumina HiSeq 2500 instrument. So this is one of the class of next generation sequencers. 
you don't have to have large intact fragments of DNA. You can sequence from the small degraded fragments that most Neanderthal ancient DNA exists in because it degrades over time. Um, and you can sequence a lot of it. Knowing what we do about Neanderthal DNA put the science fiction part of my brain in full geek out mode. In our lifetime, will we be able to see, you know, kind of a living, breathing Neanderthal that's created in a lab? The technology to do so arguably exists today. Yeah, you could have like a version of Sturbridge Village or Williamsburg, Virginia, just a town with all Neanderthals building tools and grunting at each other. I think it will ultimately be decided that that's an unethical thing to do. You know what? Good. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. But what does that Neanderthal DNA mean for us today? According to Professor Akey, one of the benefits modern humans got from mating with Neanderthals was it improved their immune systems. It was a very efficient way for our ancestors to quickly adapt to these new conditions. Was to have sex with the Neanderthal. And just pick up a few beneficial genes from Neanderthals. Great. Okay. <laughs> but you don't get the benefits just from the sex. Your kids will get it. Yes. Yeah. It's a persistent benefit. <laughs> I almost never get sick per right? the Neanderthal thing. Yes, almost never. I can't remember the last time I was sick. Wow, and you have kids? And I have kids and the whole thing. I never get the flu, I never get colds, I never really get anything. That is interesting. But wait, there's more to the benefits of having Neanderthal DNA. There are a few genes that are clearly important in early formation of skin, um, like keratin proteins. Oh, and so Neanderthals had nice nails. Perhaps it was nice nails or, or hair. My nails, I think, are fine. Yeah, I like your nails. Thanks. Don't thank me yet. Your Neanderthal DNA does have some downsides. It may play a factor in depression, and it may have something to do with chain smoking. It just so happens that this sequence now influences your ability to stop smoking. Uh, okay never smoked. It's a good thing you've never smoked because you'd find it harder to quit. I may just take up the habit just to see if it's right. Right, just to see, just to <laughs> test this proposition. <laughs> One of the most mind-blowing things the field of archaic genomics has uncovered is that modern humans and Neanderthals weren't the only people around. 30,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago, we walked around the earth, we'd find modern humans, Neanderthals, Denisovans. If we went to the island of Flores, we'd see the hobbit individuals. So there these were hobbits? Homo florensius. So very small, diminutive, archaic human types. So the world was a much more interesting place 50,000 years ago. And today, the only remnants that we see of these archaic forms of humans are the scattered remains of their DNA in the genomes of modern individuals. I may not only have Neanderthal DNA, I may have Denisovan, Hobbit, or who knows what. So I decided to take a test. I do know one thing about myself. I wonder if my caveman ancestors were any better at opening packages. A saliva collection kit. And, uh, right, no food or drink for 30 minutes. Okay, spit to fill line. All right, here we go. Oh, that's a lot of spit. <laughs> 20 minutes later, my cup runneth over with saliva. I have to say this is bringing out a little bit of my competitive tendencies. I'm a little jealous that Michael is so Neanderthal. And, uh, and I don't know. We'll see. 
Time to see who's the Neanderthaliest of them all. Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. <laughs> I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And so I actually have the result. I haven't right. looked yet. <clears throat> but you all. haven't looked. I have not looked. So I, as you heard, I spit in an envelope and sent it in. And I'm going to look now. Your DNA tells the story of who you are and how you're connected to populations. Trace your heritage through the centuries and uncover Cleo 100%. What does that mean? Cleo? Yeah, what is Cleo? Gideon? Hey, Mo. Remember you were a little nervous about using your real name? I use the name of my cat. Oh, that's the name of Gideon's cat. It's Cleo. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'm a hundred percent Cleo. <laughs> I thought it was like some. I thought maybe it meant oh, you've got a hundred percent of a marker for some disease that's going to kill you. Called I Cleo. know the Cleo disease. <laughs> okay, all right. It already says all right. Ancestry composition. Your DNA suggests your ancestry is 40.8% Iberian with ties to five other populations. And I'm going to view report. Wow. Some over 40% Spanish. Okay. Which mm -hmm. is kind of sexy. And did you know that? Isla Bonita. Um, well, my mother's Colombian. Okay. So 30.2% Italian, mm -hmm. Italy. I'm 0.3% Ashkenazi Jewish. Are you? Yes. Welcome. I... I it's interesting because a cab driver the other day asked, said, are you Jewish? Said to you, are you yeah. Jewish? Yeah. And now you can answer in the affirmative. Hell yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, hell yes. <laughs> okay. I'm 3.5% East Asian and Native American. Oh, I'm that's Jew what I was looking for. Oh my God. I have it. Congrats. Thank you. Oh God, don't be jealous. Okay. 2.7% two, um, two, two Native American, Colombia, Venezuela, plus three more. Cuba, Brazil, and Mexico. Okay, wow. that's great. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, so where do I find my Neanderthal? It was on a separate tab, as far as I recall. So it looks like I have only only 236 Neanderthal variants, which puts me in the bottom 11% in terms of Neanderthal content. Well, it sounds like that researcher was right, that you have less Neanderthal than the average person. Right. If you have less than 89% of 23andMe customers, that suggests to me you don't have very much at all. Right. I guess that's what it means. Anyway, so, okay, so we can conclude I have virtually no Neanderthal, hence our different pronunciations of Neanderthal. Yes, but you do have a real smorgasbord of all nice. uh, everything that I wanted. So I wouldn't say it's a tie. I would say you're slightly ahead in the genetic lottery. You said a smorgasbord, but I have no Northern European. So maybe right. we should, what would be something more? A paella, <laughs> which I love it so much. Well, Michael Ian Black, I want to thank you, but you should really be thanking me because this was about finding your roots since I'm basically 0% Neanderthal. Well, thank you. I mean, I really feel like I learned a lot about myself, about my family. Uh, I now know more about you and simultaneously think less of you 
because you are not of my species. But uh, yeah, this was a blast. Before we close, a word from the University of Wisconsin's John Hawks on his predecessors in Neanderthal research. Those people whose early analysis set the stage for how Neanderthals were seen for so long. When we look at the scientific world of the Victorian era, you're looking at people who became aware of human variation around the world, but they interpreted it in a very culturally insensitive way. You look at the past and think, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they said that. But that was the way that they approached their science. Today, we look at things totally differently. And when we look at extinct human groups, they had their own ways of living in the world. You have to appreciate, they're not us, but they lived at a time with incredible challenges and they overcame those challenges. And that is something really fundamentally similar that we share with them. Today, we're all experts. I mean, we can just spit in an envelope and get all the answers, right? Far from it. Let's all hope that science and technology will allow us one day to understand why a species of humans as advanced as the Neanderthals disappeared from the planet, so that maybe, just maybe, we don't disappear. At least not before our next episode of Mobituaries, featuring the incomparable Sammy Davis Jr. I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you would, please rate and review our podcast. You can also follow Mobituaries on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at Moraka. Tell me how Neanderthal you are. For more great content, please visit Mobituaries.com. You can subscribe to Mobituaries wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Gideon Evans. Our team of producers also includes Megan Marcus, Kate McAuliffe, Megan Dietrich, and me, Mo Rocca. It was edited by David Fox and engineered by Dan DeZula. Indispensable support from Justin Hader, Genius Dineski, Kira Wardlow, Zach Gilcrest, the team at CBS News Radio, and Richard Rohrer. Our theme music is written by Daniel Hart. Special thanks to Gary Perdue, Ainara Sistiaga, and London's Natural History Museum. And as always, undying thanks to Rand Morrison and John Carp, without whom mobituaries couldn't live. Hi, it's Mo. If you're enjoying Mobituaries the Podcast, may I invite you to check out Mobituaries the Book. It's chock full of stories not in the podcast. Celebrities who put their butts on the line, sports teams that threw in the towel for good, forgotten fashions, defunct diagnoses, presidential candidacies that cratered, whole countries that went kaput, and dragons. Yes, dragons. You see, people used to believe that dragons were real until... Just get the book. You can order Mobituaries, the book, from any online bookseller or stop by your local bookstore. And look for me when I come to your city. Tour information and lots more at mobituaries.com. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. 
Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.